wonderful humans out there in the world. This is Ethan Sawyer, the College Essay Guy. My goal here with the podcast is to bring more ease, joy, and purpose into the college application process. My job here is to interview the most brilliant minds in the college admissions world, analyze their genius, and then break it down for you in a series of practical, actionable steps that you can take, whether you're applying to college or helping someone else apply. My guest today, this is a really exciting one, is uh, Edward B. Fisk. He's known to most folks as Ted, and he's well-known especially uh, for writing the Fisk Guide to Colleges. And if you know this book, I mean, if you're, especially if you're a counselor, this is a book that resides on your library and you get the new version every year. It's the nation's best-selling college guide. And, uh, you know, this book's been a go-to reference for me and a lot of other counselors in our work with students. And it was really cool getting a chance to just go behind the scenes a little bit and hear how this book was made, why it came to be. On the podcast, we talk about why did it even, you know, why did Ted even write the thing in the first place? I asked him how he avoids sounding generally positive about all schools, because I imagine that that would be, you know, a, a trap or a temptation. Uh, how the Fisk Guide rating system is different from that of U.S. News and World Reports. He's got some cool things to say about that. I asked him who actually writes all 882 pages of the Fisk Guide. Uh, what the best approach would be for students who have no idea what they want, what advice he would give to them, how to use the guide itself, and uh, you know what some of the biggest mistakes that students and parents make when they're searching for a school. Uh, finally, we talk about the dangers of narrowing your college choices too early on, and he offers one quality that he finds essential to having an amazing college experience. So I had a lot of fun getting to know Ted a little bit, and uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is kind of one of my heroes. I don't know if he knows that, so I haven't told him that directly, but his name is, he's known to you as Edward B. Fisk, uh, known to his friends and his, the folks who know him as Ted. He served as the education editor for the New York Times <coughs> from 1974 to 1991. Uh, he's well known to college-bound students and their parents as the editor of The Fisk Guide to Colleges. And if you go into pretty much any college counselor's office, you'll see this green book. This It's a tome of the college application process um, sitting on their shelf, likely. Um, in fact, if you just buy one book, this is probably the one you'd want to get. He's co-authored a range of other books on college admissions with Bruce G. Hammond, including The Fisk Guide to Getting into the Right College, What to Do When for College, and Real College Essays that Work. Oh, and also Nailing the New SAT, by the way. So Ted, I just want to say, first of all, this is a huge honor for me, and I feel like it's because of you and, and a few folks li like you um, that have helped set the stage uh, for a lot of us counselors. And so I just you know, really want to thank you for being on the podcast today. So welcome. Well, it's Good my, morning. It, it's my pleasure. Good morning. And I really appreciate all those nice things you said about them. <laughs> I, I hope my wife is listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so first of all, Ted, I, I, I'm just curious. What do you do and why do you do it? And you can take that to mean whatever you want to mean. But what do you do and why do you do it? Maybe college admissions related, but feel free to, to, to riff extemporaneously if you feel like it. Well, I, I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. I spent uh, 27 years uh, at the New York Times as an editor and writer, uh, first covering religion, then covering education. And the Fisk Guide got started while I was uh, the education editor. It, it originally was the uh, New York Times Selective Guide to Colleges. But then 
that's a, a lot of evolution took place, and it's it's become an, the, an eponymous uh, fist guide. Um, but my other interest would be I, I do a lot of writing about education in developing countries. My wife, Helen Ladd, or Sunny Ladd, teaches uh, public policy at Duke University, and uh, she focuses on education policy. So I've lived in various places in the world writing about education in developing countries. Um, and uh, so I basically am, on the one hand, a, a regular journalist uh, no longer with New York Times. I left the Times in the, in the mid-90s, but then also with the college guide. So I, uh, I spend, takes at least at least half of my time is spent on updating the Fisk Guide to Colleges. And to the second part of this question, and this is maybe the, the harder question, but, but why do you do it? Why do I do it? Well, you know, uh, I guess journalists are curious people, and uh, it's a... It's a um, it's a wonderful profession for me because I do tend to have a lot of curiosity. I know something about how how to write, and it's just interesting. And uh, so, what we've discovered, my my wife and I, as we've wandered around the world looking at education systems in various countries, is that there's kind of a global marketplace for ideas about school reform, the same way there is uh, about everything else, from oil to pork belly futures. Uh, but then the other thing is that with the with the fist guide, um, I have a sense that I'm I like to think that I'm uh, I'm helping a lot of people. Uh, the whole college admissions process can be pretty daunting, uh, and uh, I think that I have something to offer to students to maybe help them help them rationalize the system and help them find the right college that's for them. So I feel that it's 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 helping a lot of people, and that's very satisfying. Hmm. This is, you mentioned the Fisk Guide, and it's something that I think, you know, as a counselor, you know, having come into this, I felt like, well, it's kind of always been around. But of course, it wasn't always, always around in the literal sense of the word. Could you just give us the brief, the origin story for the Fisk Guide, why it came about, and, and perhaps a bit about how it came about? Well, you have to uh, flash back to the antediluvian days of the early, of the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, as you may may recall, by that point, the baby boomers were finishing their treks through college. Uh, the number of high school uh, graduates was declining, uh, and a lot of college admissions office, officers were nervous about whether they'd be able to fill up the classes. And uh, so the... Um, uh, they became much more aggressive in their uh, in their recruiting activities. Now, as we look back on it, it all seems rather quaint. Uh, the, the aggressive marketing consisted of four color brochures and mailboxes and and uh, and uh, and tapes, videotapes. Remember them? Uh, and uh, I, it was a story that I wrote about for the New York Times because they were doing some sometimes kind of outrageous things. And I wrote about for the front page of the New York Times. I covered it for the business section of the Times. At one point, I wrote an uh, article for Atlantic uh, on the whole phenomenon. And the but the idea, basic idea was colleges were beginning to market themselves, and that at that point was was quite new. So I figured, uh, and I had some conversations with the publisher of Times Books, which was a publishing arm of the New York Times at that time. Um, and we decided maybe there was a market for somebody, to, a need for somebody to come in and on the side of the com consumers and uh, 
it cut cut through all of the uh, propaganda that was coming from the colleges, and so that's essentially how the Fisk Guide came into being. Wow! And it seems to me like such a monumental task of collecting all this information. I'd be curious to know about how that process began, and also how that's evolved, and how that how the information yeah. on the colleges is gathered. So maybe the first part: How did you begin to collect all that information? Because that just seems like a huge yeah. task. Well, the basic thing to remember is it's essentially a journalistic effort. Uh, what I do is I, a journalist, asks people questions, writes <laughs> writes down what they have to say, and then it puts it out in a in a readable form for uh, readers and viewers. Uh, and so um, we, what I do is essentially twofold. We have a questionnaire which we send out to all the colleges that are in the guide, and we have a little about 325 schools. And that's still only about 15% of all the four-year colleges in the U.S., but we send questionnaires to the administration, and they give us the kind of information that you would expect, uh, not just applications and yield rates and that sort of thing. Um, but also, uh, we ask them, you know, what's your educational vision? What are you trying to do? Um, what, are the, what are the curriculum requirements, the, uh, uh, the course requirements, uh, and what's your rationale behind them? And so we ask these questions to the administration, and then we ask the administration to pick a, a small number of, of students uh, to answer student questionnaires, and these are separate, and they're sent directly back to us, and we ask the students what it's like to be a student at your college. And so I'm asking things like uh, everything from uh, what's the academic culture, is it uh, intensive or laid back, are students competitive? competitive with each other? Are they sabotaging each other's lab experiments? <laughs> uh, and uh, what's the social life and the cultural life in the dorms and so forth? And then we basically take what we what the, what the two sets of questionnaires have given us and we uh, write up a narrative uh, description of the school. And these are, as I say, narrative. There's a coherent little essays. They follow a pretty much a, a set pattern of topics that we cover. Um, and then we try to capture the institutional personality of the school. I have, that leads to two questions. One is because I went to a session at NACAC a few years back where, you know, one of the presenters was talking, it was, the title was the myth of fit and the notion that, you know, because there's kind of you know, homogeneity and the, the resources or the, the propaganda, as you put it, that, that gets put out, that you've got liberal arts schools touting their sports programs and the schools known for sports touting their arts programs. How do you sort of suss through all this information for colleges who want to be, want to seem like they're pretty great at everything, or so I'd guess, you know, how do you avoid being, you know, general or just, you know, sort of generally positive about all the schools? Is there some sort of process of, of weeding through for that? Or how does that go? Well, one of my one of my assumptions. This, this was actually a little bit of a risk when we first started it, the editorial risk, because what I feared was that once you'd written about the 17th small liberal arts college in Ohio, where the faculty often invite the students to their homes for dinner, things would begin to sound alike and blend into each other, um, and it would be pretty dull reading. Uh, and what I found, much to my surprise and delight, was that colleges are very different. They, they have very distinct institutional cultures, very distinctive in, institutional personalities, 
And even schools that on paper kind of look alike, and they may be 15 yards, 15 miles down the road from each other, are quite different. They have different feel, they have different uh, histories, uh, they have different cultures. And so what I'm trying to do in these essays about each school, and they they run anywhere from 1,000 to 2,500 words, depending on, on the school. What I'm trying to do is to capture that institutional personality. What is it? What is seems to be the special feeling about this school right? what about and what it's about? And then the assumption is that the, that the reader, the potential uh, undergraduate or, or, or parents, yeah, can then figure what's a good um, match for me. Is this a kind of an institutional culture that I'd like to be part of? And because there are so many, as you mentioned, so many different schools, and they are so different, how do you decide which colleges get selected for the guide? And and in particular, like you mentioned, three hundred twenty-five schools. You know, which three twenty-five get get the honor of getting in the guide? Well, that can be sometimes be a matter of controversy, and I often some colleges that aren't in the guide uh, often let me know about their uh, disapproval of that decision. Uh, although we do continually add schools, and uh, we're open to. To change it, um, the what we we have basically the most the school the obvious schools the ones that are most selective, the ones that are most desired desirable or from a journalistic point of view the 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 schools that that most readers are going to want to read about. So this would include all of the really selective schools, so the selective privates. It would include all of the major state universities, the flagship campuses. But then I um, then I basically look for uh, good representation of various niches of schools. I want to have some uh, historically black schools. I, I want to have some evangelical schools. I want to have Roman Catholic schools. Uh, I want to have schools that are environmentally oriented. Uh, so I'm basically trying to anticipate the kinds of schools that readers are going to want to know about, and to then have a you know have a good representation of those. Uh, I'm also looking for geographic diversity. So uh, a small liberal arts college in New England that's maybe marginal in terms of quantity of quality might have would have a lot less chance of being in in the book than if it were located in Texas or Oklahoma or someplace where there just aren't a lot of liberal arts colleges. So I want what I want to do is to serve readers by giving them as many options as I can in their particular area. So. Here's a question. If I'm a college and I want to get in the book, how do I convince you that I'm worth getting in the book? I, I asked the colleges to write me a, a two-page letter, no more than two pages. If, after, if I read more than two pages, my lips get tired uh, reading. So um, the, uh, I said, make the case for including and, and tell me along the way uh, how you compare favorably with some schools that are already in the guide. And that system works pretty well. And I am often persuaded by some of these letters. What's your yield rate, Ted? <laughs> In other words, and so for folks who know what that means, if you accept a certain college, uh, what percentage, about what percentage of them accept you back and decide they want to be in the guide? Is it pretty high? <laughs> uh, the, yeah, I think my yield rate is about 100%. <laughs> cool. So but, you're I mean, nobody ever good. says they don't want to be in, uh, but... Uh, Anyway, I'll, I'll worry about it. I'll take that problem when it comes. <laughs> right. So in the intro, you mentioned a few uh, different ratings or, you know, 
criteria that you use when you're assessing the schools, you know, just for folks who don't have the book in front of them, academics, campus setting, student body, you mentioned these, financial aid, <clears throat> housing, food, social life, extracurricular activities. I'm curious to know, what are your prejudices and values that have shaped the criteria for these ratings? Well, actually, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, uh, Ethan, because I, I really do, I try to think a lot about the values that I'm building into the into the FISC guide, and especially as as the higher education scene changes. Um, the uh, I guess the first one would be that that the that picking a college, and this is something that every guidance counselor is going to tell every kid. Yeah, so there's nothing original about this. Is that it's a it's a matching process. It's a question of fit. Um, one of the great uh, bonuses about going to college in the United States is that the United American system of higher education is uh, is so diverse. I mean, we've got 4,000 four-year colleges. Or, uh, it's um, And there's big ones and small ones and rural and urban and uh, religiously oriented and, uh, and, and so forth. So there is this huge diversity. So there's no way, there's no reason that any particular student can't find 12, 14, 20 schools that are going to be a good fit for them. So it is a, it is a question of, of finding a place where, where your particular needs uh, are going to be served by the particular culture and, and personnel, institutional personality of the school. So this idea of finding the right fit, as opposed to saying this is the best school, uh, is, is the, the key thing. And what I try to do is to encourage students to understand this and this and to have confidence that at some that there are schools out there that are going to be a good match for them uh, because the, the, there are the answer is they can be sure that's true um, I think the other um, another thing would be what I just talked about that the schools do have very different institutional personalities uh, and it's a way, and it's possible to um, to look at them and describe them. Uh, you know, I, I keep I, we update every year with things like new dorms and new buildings and new majors and so forth. But the basic personality of the school that we're describing doesn't evolve, doesn't change very much. It, I was it was interesting. Even the the uh, former all women's colleges that be, became co-ed. In their case, um, their their culture didn't change all that much because, like this, the the men who go to Vassar are in many ways have the same kinds of interests as the women who went to Vassar when it was uh, still a women's colleges. Um, I think the another value would be what I just alluded to: the diversity is a good thing, uh, and it's good that we have a diverse system. <laughs> but but I try to say in in the write ups that looking for diversity in the student body is an important value. And this is becoming more and more evident as we enter into a globalized uh, uh, society, uh, the globalized world, um, that you're not really going to be getting a good education if everybody or a high percentage of, the, of your fellow students are just like you, that being exposed to different viewpoints, different students from different backgrounds, socioeconomic, geographic, national, or 
or whatever is really important and it's essential to a good education these days. So, for example, I will, uh, we, we in the last few years started giving uh, uh, reporting on what the percentage of students who are interested, who are eligible for Pell Grants, which is to say federal money for low-income students, because, uh, because the assumption is that being educated where there's some socioeconomic diversity in the among the students that you're rubbing elbows with is a positive thing. It's going to benefit you as well as the institution. Uh, I think globalization is another value. Uh, I mean, I've always I did I did study abroad as a, a student myself. I've I've lived in a bunch of other countries. Uh, from the very beginning, we uh, included some Canadian schools, write-ups about Cana the four, four, four of the leading Canadian schools. Since then, we've added um, uh, schools in Scotland, which are a good match for American students because they, um, uh, they have a four-year system that's uh, comparable, that's, that fits in easily with U.S. Uh, educational patterns. We uh, added Trinity College Dublin, uh, so what I try to do is um, let students know um, about some of these other opportunities and encourage them to maybe think about even going to one of these schools. If not for four years, then maybe um, uh, uh, as an exchange student for a semester or a year. But then I've also, in the write-ups, done a lot more aggressive reporting about how many, how many, <coughs> excuse me, reporting about how many uh, international students they have and then how many uh, students at this particular school uh, study abroad. So I've really built this, what you might call global awareness uh, in, into the write-ups. And then I guess the final um, value that I would that comes to mind would be uh, I really believe strongly in the liberal arts education, liberal arts values, because um, Whatever you learn of a technical sort is going to be obsolete, maybe even by the time you, you graduate. But learning to think and developing intellectual curiosity, learning to write and speak, yeah, these are the kinds of things which are going to, the skills that are going to last you, not just get you the first job, but last for the whole, um, for your uh, whole career. And so I really, I really do talk a lot in the book about what how the college thinks about its, its curriculum is serving the broader purposes of liberal arts. And in terms of uh, rating the schools, or we'll say, you know, comparing one school to the other, how does that work? Is it, is it self-assessed? You know, on the questionnaire, for example, is there like a one to 10, how well do you think you're doing? Or, you know, is it just sort of you read the information that they've shared with you and you do some kind of internal assessment based on what you know and based on the information you get to give it a sort of, you know, assessment or is there any kind of rating system? How do you, how does that go? For well, you? yeah, I, I mean, I don't have a rating system comparable to U.S. news. I mean, I don't say this college is number one, this is number four, this is number 17. I mean, they, for a whole lot of reasons, I just don't think that's, uh, that's accurate. Uh, <laughs> and, what I do is I, I did want to have some kind of a way to help readers uh, compare schools. And so I'm, as I said several times, I'm a journalist. And so I use the restaurant critic model um, of stars. So I, I give a sign a number of stars 
or telephones or uh, you know, other characters, not just stars, uh, uh, based on academics, based on social life and, uh, and, and quality of life. And so I have these, um, you know, one to five stars, although there aren't any one, um, because if it was, if it was a one, the question would come, why do you put it in the book? <laughs> um, but, um, Anyway, so I, I do assign stars, but the, the purpose of that is really so that students can can compare schools within it. You know, they, they can look at this, the, 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 the relative, the relation between the number of academic stars and the number of social stars, social being more measure of, act, of, of the quantity of social activity, uh, and say, uh, it's a way of comparing the schools and, again, helping figure out whether this is going to be a good place for, you know, it's going to reflect your values. But I, I don't pay a huge amount of attention to the to these ratings. Uh, the, the core of the book is the narrative description and, as I said, keep saying about the what's, what is, what's it like to be there as a student. Right. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the U.S. News and World Report rankings, because at this point, Ted, we're only this is the sixth podcast episode. So anybody who's just coming into the podcast or coming into the college admissions process may not know about the U.S. News and World Report rankings. So all they may know is that that's those are the rankings that people go by and they might even be developing a list based on those rankings. So I'd love for you to just say. You know, give me what's your take on the U.S. News and World Report rankings, and keep in mind that your listeners, again, may feel like this is the sort of the way to go and a place to look for, you know, good and like the sort of be all end all. Well, as you, as I guess most people would know by now, that U.S. News publishes <coughs> a lot of statistical data on on schools, and then it assigns uh, a ranking, and it. Uh, and it ranks the schools one, two, three, four, five. So number one is this is a better school. So number one is a better school than number seven, and numbers which is better than number seventeen. Um, and so it's you know we're used we're used to rankings. American love Americans love this kind of statistics and rankings, and we do it in lots of areas. Um, when it comes to trying to pick a college where you're going to be spending a huge amount of money and four turn and four uh, years, um, I know it's not a very good way to make this kind of a decision. Uh, I mean, for one thing, uh, as you may have guessed from what we've been saying before, the U.S. News rankings asks the wrong question. The U.S. News says, basically, what's the best school and what's the second best and what's the third best? The right question to ask is, what's the best, what's the best school for me? Uh, there are a lot of really bright uh, uh, 17-year-olds for whom Harvard would be a terrible place, especially if you need a little nurturing and want to see a faculty member before you're a junior. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's that question of fit. And the U.S. news rankings don't pay any attention to this question of fit. You know, they have this abstract uh, set of, they have a formula, and they say this school is better according to, to that formula. Um, Another problem with the U.S. news rankings is it's all based on inputs. It looks at um, who the, the SAT scores of the incoming students. It looks at the institutional resources. Um, it doesn't look at anything that happens once the student enrolls. So it doesn't say anything about the quality of the teaching or the academic climate. 
it's all based on some abstract, some things that can be measured. You know, you, you measure what you can measure. What the most important things about schools are not necessarily things that lend themselves to, uh, to quantification. Um, and closely related to that is it's, it's essentially, U.S. news rankings are essentially a measure of institutional wealth. Um, and it used to be uh, that there were plenty of public flagship universities like Berkeley and UCLA um, and Michigan and all that were at the top of their rankings. But over the years, the number of public institutions has declined. And private institutions, by definition, have bigger endowments uh, and a lot of wealth. So essentially what uh, the criterion that the, uh, the criteria that U.S. News uh, uses for uh, doing their rankings is large, pretty closely tied to wealth. So a rich school is going to do better whether or not the faculty cares very much about teaching or not. Uh, and then finally, you know, you can uh, U.S. News has its own criteria, which some of which I just talked about, but it, it might be theoretically possible for you, and, and they're not necessarily the, the criteria that are important for you. I mean, theoretically, you could take the U.S. News data and uh, create your own uh, ranking system based on your particular values, and that would be an improvement. Um, they, it is useful uh, for, some, for some data if you're comparing uh, things like application numbers and and yield rates and and so forth, but it's the the rankings are just they're they're what U.S. news editors think are, are is important, and that's not necessarily going to be what's really important uh, for you. Um, I mean, years ago, one of them, I mean, and I know the editors of U.S. News; they they've been around for a long time. The the it it the whole idea began as what they called a, they were, some editors were sitting around, it was a journalistic parlor game is the way they describe it. But somehow it's taken on a life of its own. And um, it's really important that students, if they're really thinking about seriously about issues like, like FIT, if they just you know, don't pay much attention to those rankings. Is there anything that the US News World Report rankings are useful for? Well, they ha they have a lot of data, mm -hmm. and if you if you're getting to the point, especially late in the in the process, where you where you want to know where where a particular aspect of a school um, is um, is important to you, you you can you can find data, but you, you can do that without without buying into their um, system of what without the editors telling you what's important. Right. So. The Fisk guide is, you know, 800 and 900 pages. And I have this, you know, <laughs> image in my mind of you sitting down each year just with a blank Microsoft Word document and starting with yeah. the first school and just typing <laughs> until you get to 900 pages, redoing it each year. But that's right. That, I, that's that's right. I start out, I, I write about Adelphi and work my way through to Yale. And that's, um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it goes. Uh, so just no. Tell me, how does that go? Who, who writes the, the all pages and, and how does that process well, go? It, it would be an interesting experiment to figure out how much overlapping language there is between now and when the book first came out 30, over 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're, we, what we do is we update the write-ups every year. You know, so we keep abreast of uh, uh, new buildings, new programs, new health centers, new dorms, 
all, all that sort of thing. Um, and we update things like the statistics, like how many, how many students study abroad um, and, um, and all that. Uh, but so m probably, you know, by far most of the language in any particular write-up is not going to change all that much from year to year. And as I said, the, the one immutable thing is our description of the institutional culture. What's this place really like? And that that does not change very much. It's like moving, you know, steering a battleship. Um, and so what we do is we get the question, we send out questionnaires, uh, both to the schools and, to, and we get to, uh, it questionnaires from the students uh, each year. And then we read these and then we read the, the current write up and uh, in light of what the students are telling me, telling us. And, uh, and then we, uh, and then we update. Great. And who's we, how big is the, how, just curious, I don't actually know this. How big is the team? You know, who's, you know, how, how does that go? Well, I have two principal assistants, one of whom uh, who uh, is actually my daughter, Julie, um, who uh, is who works on sending the questionnaires out and maintaining our contacts. Uh, we, we a lot of the questionnaires are filled out by institutional research people. And, and these, you know, they they evolve every few, every few years. There's new people, so so she works on the follow up and making sure that we get the information in. And then I have a, a managing editor, Michelle Lecoyer, who who does takes charge of uh, of the updating of the um, of the write ups. And then I have a heavy I have a big hand in I say heavy hand I have a I have a big hand in in doing that and sort of setting. Uh, you know, general uh, editorial directions, and then the the pub. I have a wonderful publisher, Sourcebooks, um, in um, in Illinois and in Naperville, Illinois, suburb of Chicago, and then there's just a whole bunch of really good folks on Sourcebooks staff who who deal with uh, all aspects from uh, uh, helping to send out the emails uh, through the computer system to proofreading and um, uh, quality control and that sort of thing. So it's a little hard to answer how many people are involved. Uh, I, as I said, I have two uh, basically on my staff, but it's very much a collegial activity. Ted, when do you feel the guide is most useful uh, in the process of applying to college? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I like to say that it's useful at any point in the process. I would say there are two there are two points where it's particularly valuable. The first would be at the very beginning. I mean, what do I I want to go to a four year school. Um, there are twenty two hundred of them to choose from. How in the world do I even start? Do I just kind of um, throw the book down the down the stairs and see what pages fall out or uh, so it's it's a way to begin to think about what your values are. And I have a, there's a, a little quiz at the beginning of the book for, called Sizing Yourself Up, which uh, allows you to suggest some questions you could ask is about the sort of place that you, that you might want to go to. And so identifying some schools to, um, you know, to, to, to begin the search is, is one point. But then also, broadening your uh, uh, horizons a little bit. And one of what I suggest is to a lot of students is um, 
if you know if there's a school that you know that you you might be interested in then look at the schools that they share a lot of applicants with and we list those at the end of each write-up because um you can take the um, advantage of the fact that other students coming before you have seen uh, if you like one school you might like this yeah, so that's a way uh, of looking at the overlapping admission uh, applications. But basically, as a you know, as a tool for narrowing the search and at least getting started. Uh, and of course, I encourage students to visit different types of schools. You know, visit an urban one, visit a rural one, visit a big one, visit a small one, just to get a old sense of uh, uh, what's going to be good for you. And then I suppose at the very end of the process where you have um, um, maybe you have offers from three or four schools and you want to start doing a comparison about of them on particular things that are important to you. If you are you really concerned about the, the quality of the dorms or the sports programs or what? So at that point, you can use the book in a very different way, and that is to um, um, look at look at what the write-ups say about each of these schools on a particular point, like the quality of the dorms or the, do you have to be a member of a fraternity to have a decent social life, things like that. So a little bit more compare and contrast. But other than that, at any given point, uh, questions are going to arise and, and the book sits there, all 800 pages of it, ready to help you out. <laughs> right. And because it's such an, uh, you know, a big guide, let's get just really practical so, you know, you mentioned, for example, the sizing yourself up section where, you know, you identify a bunch of these qualities, you know, say I'm a student who's trying to develop a good college list, you know, yeah. it, would it be, would it make sense to just start at that sizing yourself up section and just kind yeah. of, kind of, well, let me, it? let me just maybe speak from my own personal experience. Um, I, when I, w I grew up in Philadelphia, I uh, went to one of the Quaker schools in Philadelphia and I wanted to go to a small liberal arts college in New England. Uh, and one of the reasons was that I knew I wanted to be able to do lots of different things and not have to specialize, which is why I wanted a, wanted a smaller school. Um, and as it, it worked out, I, I went to Wesleyan in Connecticut, which is you know, one of the better small liberal arts colleges in the country. And I was able to play sports and I edited the newspaper and did other things as well as you know, keeping up my grade. So I wanted a smaller school simply because I didn't want to have to go to, um, I didn't have to specialize. If I'd gone to a larger school and I wanted to be on the newspaper, it really would have been difficult to play sport as well. Uh, and so what what I did was, you know, I, now there wasn't a fist guide to help me, uh, of course, but what I, if I were to do this again with, with this coming at it with the same attitude that I had then, you know, I would look up Wesleyan or Amherst or school and then you know, read about them and, and then look at the overlaps that they had and maybe develop a, a list of 15 or 20 um, uh, schools to, to read about. And then you can begin to focus in on uh, where you might want to go, go visit. But uh, so it's... You find some kind of a little hook that something that's interesting and you you're interested in. I mean, are there uh, some people want want the fun of being in a school with uh, Division One sports? So you know, pick a school that that looks like you know like Michigan or something that might, and then then look at the schools that they compete with um, academically and uh, and otherwise. Uh, and 
Speak to the kids, the students who are listening, who have just no idea what they want. They think, I want to go to college, or I feel like I should go to college, but I have no idea what I'm looking for. What's the best way for them to approach this? Well, uh, I mean, one thing I warn students about is is narrowing your choices too, too early. I mean, most people, they say, well, you know, I want to go and be an anthropology major. Well, chances are pretty good you're going to change your mind four or five times before you end up doing that. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to go to, um, you know, to pick a school where you're going to have other options because you're going to, one of the, one of the things about college and uh, one of the purposes of education is to let you know that things exist that you had no idea of. <laughs> yeah. So it may very well be that you get to school and, this turns out there's a medieval Urdu teacher who is really captivating and turns on your intellectual curiosity. It's going to teach you a lot about how to think. Uh, maybe you didn't even know there was such a thing as Urdu until you until you got there. So you really need to keep your mind open and and um, not just go in very heavily with a heavily prescribed program. Where I'm going to study this, 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 and this. And, you know, let the let the intellectual culture of the school wash over you. Um, and so uh, one, it would be you know, to, to keep to look for places where you are going to have lots of options. And now there are people in some fields, for example, engineering, where you do have to specialize a lot earlier because there's so much to, um, um, you know, to cover. And so that's a somewhat of a special case. But on the other hand, there are a lot of first-rate engineering schools where they very much teach uh, engineering within the culture of a liberal arts, of the liberal arts. Um, and uh, that that's the sort of thing um, that you can, uh, yeah, you can look for and uh, make sure that you uh, you do what you want, but also realize, keep in mind the the, the, the intellectual context of the place. <laughs> Right. And I love this sizing yourself up section at the beginning of the book that you mentioned, which basically, for those who haven't seen it yet, identifies 30 qualities that students you know, could or should consider. Are there, in your mind, are there any particular qualities that are, this is a weird way to put it, but like more important than others? Or are there like a, if you had to do like a top three things to consider list, you know, what would be some of those qualities that, that you think are really important students should definitely well, think about? Yeah, I mean there are there are values like, for example, do you like to be a, a big fish in a smaller pond? Uh, do you like to be one of the smarter people in the room, <laughs> or do you get a kick out of being surrounded by people who are a lot smarter than you are? Is uh, you find that uh, yeah, that's stimulating? There's there's not a right or wrong answer for this. This is just a question of temperament. Um, uh, so that's the kind of a question if when you're picking between a, a big school or a small school. Uh, I've also I've already talked about you want to be able to um, participate in lots of activities, or do you want to uh, focus on, on on one or two? Um, and and then the question of how how you learn best. Um, Sometimes um, a lot of people can can handle large lectures uh, with, and of course with tutors afterwards, but uh, can, can learn very well from big large lecture uh, classes. Others really thrive on the 
on seminars and want the 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 the, the give and take of students among themselves and students with the faculty. It's a memory. It's it's not a question of right or wrong. It's just that different cult different uh, schools offer different kinds of learning environments, and this is try to figure out what's one that's best for you. Uh, do you want to do undergraduate research? I mean, this has been a huge trend in recent years with um, colleges letting uh, letting college letting undergraduates work uh, work on on um, research projects, serious research projects, and uh, the uh, you, the colleges do this in very different ways. Uh, and even small liberal arts colleges, um, there you have where the faculty members aren't there primarily to do research, but schools like that, the uh, the faculty members tend to pick research projects that lend themselves to having undergraduates do some of the grunt work on it, um, as opposed to uh, big universities where you're into, you're immediately thrust into big science. Uh, so it's um, it's issues like that. And I, you mentioned, you know, one of the mistakes that parents and students sometimes make is early on narrowing their options a little bit too early. Are there any other big mistakes that you see students and parents making when it comes to? Yeah, well, as I think that's that's the big one is just to decide to not look at the look at the uh, at the overall uh, uh, you know, number of schools. Uh, I think another big mistake is assuming that the published tuition price is definitive for you. Uh, (laughs) College is hugely expensive these days, but colleges have to to discount their prices in order to get students. And so uh, what what you pay is going to be a function of what their tuition is, but also how much they want you. How much uh, financial need? How much uh, need-based financial aid you might be available for, to, that might be available to you, and then how much they they really want you. Um, and uh, there's a lot of schools have uh, have merit aid, and so you, you if there's a school that you really want to go to, don't write it right off write it off at the very beginning. Um, as, as something that's going to be impossible because it might not be. I mean, it might be, but you, you have you have to really have a conversation with them. Uh, and then, you know, there's another sort of localized issue that I, uh, I, I advise women. Don't write off the women's colleges if you're a, if you're a woman. Uh, some of the some of the best education uh that it, that's available is in these women's schools, and they aren't monasteries anymore, but they are places that uh, take women seriously. Uh, and you know, colleges can be pretty sexist places, uh, especially in the in, in the larger classes. Men tend tend to want to dominate the airspace, um, and this isn't necessarily the best place for women. And they're you're not sacrificing quality if you go to a women's college because places like Bryn Mawr and Wellesley are among the best schools in the country. So don't, if you're a woman, at least at least think about the fact that you might want to that a women's college might be the best fit. Yeah, I mean, I see this a lot. You know, where students or parents sort of get obsessed with one school or or two schools. You know, and usually they're you know those schools happen to have 
fewer than, you know, less than 10% acceptance rate. <laughs> What's the danger in that in, in your mind in terms of getting narrowing? You mentioned this is really the big thing is narrowing the choices. What, what danger do you see in that? Or what is the potential well, cost of that? Well, I think you're not being sensitive to the richness of American higher education, as, as we said at the earlier. Uh, one of the definitive things about U.S. higher education, it is so diverse. I mean, in Europe, uh, students tend to go to the university in the it's in the closest city to them. There's not a lot of different personalities among the institutions. In the United States, uh, it's not that way at all. There is this and I think a lot of it has to go to goes back to the fact fact that higher education in the United States was a lot of it was founded by uh, religious organizations and the different churches wanted to have their own uh, colleges and universities so they could promote their own teaching. So they tend to be located in uh, outside of big cities. There are not a lot of there are not very many small liberal arts colleges in cities if you think about it. and even yeah. Cambridge was a was out in the uh, out in the boonies when Harvard was started. It wasn't in Boston, um, and uh, well, it still isn't actually. It's in Cambridge. Uh, New Haven was you know, was New Haven. Uh, Princeton is was a tiny town. So um, there is this um, diversity out there, and uh, you might as well take advantage of it because to go back to what we were saying before the. Um, there are dozens of schools that are going to be a good fit for any particular individual. Ted, is there anything that you feel students should really consider doing during this process, but many often don't actually do? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I really encourage whenever possible to visit some schools um, because there's a, there's something about being on a campus, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just schools that you're really, really interested in. I think it's a good, you know, visit a, a larger one, visit a smaller one. Um, but there's something just about being on a campus and maybe uh, getting a feel for what's what's going on. You can always walk into the, you know, it's a good idea to walk into the cafeteria and look around and or do you see students and faculty talking to each other or the, or the faculty in one corner and the students in another? Um, and you, you know, if, you're, if you're bold enough, it, it doesn't hurt to, to just walk up to some students and start asking them about the, uh, what it's like in most school, Most colleges, and this is something that's been pretty important to the success of the Fisk Guide, is most college students are, are pretty happy with where they went and are happy to talk about it. But they're also going to be very candid. Um, they're not going to. They understand that they're not doing anybody a favor if some if they uh, delude some uh, potential freshman into coming and it's not the right fit. That's not good for the freshman or for the or for the school. So, to, to the extent that you can um, get get on a physical campus and uh, just get a sense of what it's like to be. Um, to be a college student. And one thing to remember is that in a very real sense, the college admissions process itself is the first step in your education. Um, so think of it as part of your college education, because what you're doing is you're, you're looking at schools, you're asking questions, well, what am I really interested in? What do, why am I doing this? What, what are my goals? 
and as you deal with these questions, um, then uh, then you're going to end up at a, at a place that's a good fit for you. Um, but also, that's the first the first step when you start asking yourself about your priorities. You know, that's very much um, you're going to be doing that for four years, asking similar questions. So, so think of the application process uh, as uh, part of your college education. Boy, I couldn't agree more. And I would even say life, right? <laughs> life education in terms of, you know, how to make decisions. Uh, because in a lot of cases, this is, you know, the first time a student's really going to be making a big, big decision that can impact potentially the rest of their lives. And that maybe kind of goes yeah. without saying, but. Yeah. And the, and the other thing I, I guess I might add is that know that you're going to be successful. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I, when I talk to kids who are really anxious about the process, I, I know that. 12 months from then, they're going to be in a place that's a good match for them, assuming they you know, use a little bit of common sense. <clears throat> and uh, they're going to wonder about you know, what was all the storm and drawing? Why was I so uh, anxious about this? And that you are going to be successful. If for some reason you end up in a place that you has some dimensions that you weren't aware of, uh, you can always transfer. It's, that's not the end of the world. But by and large, you should, you should enter the process and both as students and this is advice to parents as well knowing that you're going to be successful because of all the things we've been saying there is this diversity there are all these there are dozens of places that'll be a good match for you uh, you just have to find at least one of them yeah i love that advice to visit a campus too one thing i'll i say to students is to make sure you visit three schools that are clearly different so what that could mean yeah. is a small school, mid-sized school, large school, you know, a rural school and an urban school, you know, just to get a yeah. really get a, a kinesthetic, a bodily sense of what feels right. So, yeah, I, I, I agree that uh, that's that's really important. And, you know, I'm a journalist, so I, you know, I like being out and being involved in situations and see, meeting people and seeing things. So maybe that's a bias, but I think it's generally applicable. Absolutely. Thank you, Ted. This is incredibly useful. And, and uh, you know, anybody, any, any, like throw a rock and you, in, if you're in the college admissions world and you'll find uh, this guide, but obviously you can get it online or obviously you can get it in bookstores, but you can also get it online. Could you just say a little bit about the, you know, what the online world has opened up in terms of the FIS guide. In other words, you know, would, who would prefer to get the, the, the printed copy, the hard copy and who might prefer an online copy? Well, I mean, actually, what we found is that most people really want the physical book. Uh, I mean, it's, there's an iPad app for it. There is an online version of it. Um, right now, we're having some hacking problems with, with the website, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with those. Um, but uh, it's, it seems to be one of those um, products where people just kind of want the physical book and you want to be able to sort of take it with. It's not the sort of thing that lends itself to hours in front of a screen browsing. Um, for some reason, I, I, I don't pretend to understand anything in this world, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's the physical book that people seem to want. Uh, and so they, the sales, can, it's, it's the leading guide. Uh, uh, we have Greater mar we sell more copies and there's greater market share than any other guy. So um, 
But it is available online. And then if you're in, in another country, of course, and you don't want to ship the book around the world, it's, uh, it's a big help. But so there is an iPad version and there is an online version. And the Sourcebooks website, sourcebooks.com, um, would have links to all these. Yeah, I'll, I'll link it all to the show notes and I'll give the uh, where folks can pick it up. It, at the end of the show, Ted, I like to do a little portion called Show and Tell, where each of us shares just something that we feel has either been useful in our lives, or, you know, currently or in the past that, that, we, that, other, that might be useful to other folks. And that could be in the college admissions world, or it could be, you know, something outside that, something that's just, you know, that you would like to share. Um, and, I, and I tend to, by the way, not prepare my show and tell thing until I've heard the guest share. <laughs> but is there something that comes to mind for you, Ted, that, you, that, would, that you'd like to bring for, for show and tell today? I don't know. I guess to me, and this is maybe too closely related to what we've been talking about, but uh, I just think uh, curiosity is I, – I have a lot of trouble with people who, who – aren't curious. Uh, and maybe that's my hang up. But as I said, being a journalist, it's curiosity is something that you, you traffic in a lot. But what I, I, what I found when I, when I went, I went to fairly, what was supposed to be a fairly good high school. Um, but it wasn't all that. I thought there was a lot that I was missing. And it was really when I got to Wesleyan that I sort of discovered the world of ideas and really got turned on to the fun of learning um, about different things. And, and as I said, it, it meant, um, yeah, it, it, really, it was kind of learning anything is, is, is fun. Um, and uh, I mean, I studied uh, ancient Greek just kind of for the fun of it. But the idea of the serendipity of knowledge um, the fact that you can, um, that there are a lot of, there are interesting people, of course, and interesting writers. Um, but again, this would maybe go back to what I was saying about the liberal arts, um, that uh, being open to, to the fun of ideas, uh, wherever they are, and then just seeing where they lead you. Uh, it's just one of the great joys of life. I'm just nodding as you're saying this, Ted. You, you don't know this, but the the, the tagline for this podcast is stay curious. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. It is. Um, thank you and for that reminder. And uh, so my, my show and tell is, you know, as, as I've worked with this book that you've, this amazing resource that you've created and, you know, spent the last 10 years helping students with this process, I've kind of developed my own version of how to create a great college list. So in the show notes, folks will be able to click a link and you'll be able to see in the first part of the process, well, how do you figure out? How do you, you know, get really curious and, and figure out what it is that you're looking for? And then in part two of the guide that I'll share, how can you use great resources out there? One of which is the FIS guide to find schools that could potentially be, you know, a good match for you. And then how do you, how do you whittle it down and decide which, you know, number of schools to apply to? So my show and tell is a, is a resource that, that folks can check out in the show notes. Ted, thank you. I, again, Good. it's such an honor to, to speak with you, and I just really appreciate well, your time. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. It's, uh, it's nice to have somebody push me to, uh, 
to think about some of these things because, uh, <clears throat> you know, I do get a lot of satisfaction, not, not only about learning about <clears throat> U.S. higher education, which is, you know, incredibly diverse and interesting and, and always changing and uh, keeping up with things, but also um, like the feeling that, that maybe I'm useful to some people and uh, helping them sort out um, you know, where they're going to go to school and how they're going to get um, prepared for the rest of their lives. Well, I just want to, on behalf of the college admissions community, as a, as a, as a professional in this community, I just want to say that your contributions cannot be undervalued. It's just been huge. And so thank you for all your great contributions. Oh, to, thank you. To You're very, very kind. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Uh, you can check out in the show notes my practical guide, how to create a great college list. I encourage you to check that out. Or you can just Google that phrase and that'll pop up for you. And uh, that's it. I hope you have an amazing week. Bye.